And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on October 21st, 2022. Andrew Bunting is Vice President of Horticulture and leads the utilization of planting and design to promote environmentally sound gardening practices at the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, also known as PHS. Andrew has evaluated each of the departments he oversees and has increased the brand and visibility of PHS through the respective work. Andrew received his Bachelor of Science in Plant and Soil Sciences from Southern Illinois University. Prior to arriving at PHS, Andrew worked at the Chicago Botanic Garden, Chanticleer Garden, and the Scott Arboretum for a tenure of 27 years. He has received the American Public Gardens Association Professional Citation, Chanticleer Scholarship in Professional Development, and the Certificate of Merit from the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. He also serves on the board of the Magnolia Society International. Andrew published his first book in 2015, The Plant Lover's Guide to Magnolias. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast. Andrew, we're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. You have such an amazing background. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you wound up at PHS and your background in not only gardening and landscape and all the different places you've been? Sure. Yeah, I actually, um, I got started fairly early. I went to a large high school in the suburbs of Chicago that had a horticulture, not a department, but they actually had like greenhouse management and they had a landscaping course. And so I took those and then I ended up going to a local junior college that had a really good program. And one of the things they required was two internships, both summers. So my first internship was at the Morton Arboretum, uh, west of Chicago, and the second internship was at Chicago Botanic Garden. So that kind of piqued my interest in the public garden field. I didn't really know that that existed or even existed as a career option. And then I did a couple more internships, one at Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden in Miami. And then I ended up doing a year-long internship at the Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College, where over kind of two stints, I worked there as curator for 27 years. Then I left and went to the Chicago Botanic Garden as assistant director and director of plant collections, and then to the Atlanta Botanical Garden, and then to PHS, where I work now as uh, the vice president of horticulture. So that's uh, the fast version of my life in horticulture. 
Yeah, now all, all these institutions that you worked at have stellar reputations and the experience that you receive from those places must have been life-changing for each one of those opportunities. Yeah, for sure. I also, um, between my two stints at the Scott Arboretum, I also worked at Chanticleer when it was transitioning from a private estate to public garden. So I worked there kind of part of 91 and most of 92. So yeah, all those experiences have influenced all my other work as well. Because I've also, for most of the time I was at the Scott Arboretum, I owned a design build firm called Fine Garden Creations. And then I, you know, I also do a lot of podcasts and writing and lecturing and so forth. So all that work has helped inform uh, the other aspects of my career as well. So when we think of the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, Andrew, you know, it, most people are going to say, oh, yeah, they put on the flower show. But right. PHS is so much more than that uh, when it comes to managing large urban landscapes. Can you talk about that initiative and how that's working out? Yeah, so you know, I think it's important for your listeners to know kind of PHS's basic mission which is to advance the health and well-being in the Philadelphia region through horticulture. And we have four impact priorities, one being creating healthy living environments, increasing access to fresh food, expanding economic opportunity, and building meaningful social connections. So we do that through kind of three main kind of programmatic channels, one being uh, the flower show. The other being Healthy Neighborhoods, which is our street tree program. We work with 170 community gardens, uh, workforce development, and then we have a program called Land Care, which is where we clean and green vacant lots. So not only do we clean and green them, but we maintain them. So we work with about a workforce throughout many different uh, landscaping companies with about 300 employees that maintain 13,000 vacant lots throughout Philadelphia. And then I think to what you're talking about uh, specifically is our network of public gardens and landscapes. So we like to say that we're, you know, about as public as you can get from a a public gardening perspective in that all of our sites are free and open to the public, you know, essentially all the time. We have one garden north of Philadelphia in Montgomery County in Abington Township called Meadowbrook Farm, which was a, an estate garden that was bequeathed to us about 15 years ago. But the rest of our properties that we maintain are throughout the city. So we maintain several gardens on the parkway, starting with the Azalea Garden kind of behind the Philadelphia Museum of Art. The Philadelphia Museum of Art, adjacent to that is the Rodan Museum. In the heart of the city is uh, Logan Circle. We maintain a stretch between 20th and 30th Street Station along JFK, kind of a corridor of trees. Uh, There's a gateway at the 26th Street Gateway, which is kind of at the base of the Platte Bridge, uh, kind of the back entrance to uh, the Navy Yard and where you access uh, Tasty Cake. And then we have many projects at the Navy Yard, So any kind of public areas at the Navy Yard, so all those parks, and there's about five parks at the Navy Yard, and then there's quite a bit of plantings along the Delaware River, along Admiral Perry Way. And then we have about 40 intersection pollinator gardens where streets intersect, and then we maintain all the street trees 
at the Navy Yard. That's about a thousand street trees. Another big project we've been working on for decades are the developments along the Delaware River. So from kind of Washington Avenue, and there's a, a pier park there called the Ecological Pier, all the way up to and kind of now beyond the Ray Street Pier. All those piers, pocket parks, there's a little park and park at Spruce Street Harbor Park, and then kind of all those little horticultural interventions in the, along the Delaware River. We both design and, and maintain them. Everything at the front facade, the Eastern State Penitentiary, the green roof at Pico, which is kind of sandwiched between Market and JFK. We do the entire corporate campus of Subaru of America in Camden, which is a really unique campus. And then our pop-up garden. So we have a pop-up garden in Maniunk and another one in South Street. And then we have this project we've been working on, kind of a pop-up garden-esque garden on the, where JFK comes into market, which is called the Gateway Garden, which is part of Drexel University. Wow. It is uh, quite the list. <laughs> that's a I mean, there may not be all of them, but that's, that's most of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was worried that we were going to run out the whole show with you uh, <laughs> giving us that list. <laughs> that's uh, extraordinary work there. And I'm just wondering... You know, one of the reoccurring themes is just horticulture and how it's going to interface, needs to interface with our unfolding climate catastrophe. And can you talk a little bit about some of the considerations that the Horticulture Society is giving that? Um, Certainly our city is struggling, you know, with flooding and uh, heat and tree loss as a result of extreme weather. Yeah, I think at the at the heart of the work that we do at PHS is even even before I think global climate change, you know, was was well known and 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 more broadly accepted as as happening, we were already planting landscapes that are urban tough and, and resilient. And when I think of resilient, they need to be they need to be a number of different things. They need to be drought drought tolerant, heat tolerant, in some cases, deer resistant, especially down at the Navy Yard, there's actually reasonable populations of, yeah. of, of deer. We've been you know, an advocate for building the tree canopy of Philadelphia and the region for you know 30 or 40 years through our, our tree program. So You know, we know that trees in general, you know, are are important for reducing kind of heat island effect, you know, and we didn't know this, you know, years ago that they were also important for stormwater, you know, reduction and and retention of stormwater. And then a lot of our plantings are doing that as well. So there's a lot more scientific data on what types of trees you know, will be more resilient with global climate change. So one of the things that, uh, you know, we're looking at is from a specific species point of view. So things like Quercus alba, which is a fantastic tree, you know, it's been shown that probably in this area, that will not be a viable tree, you know, in 50 years. However, something like Quercus bicolor which is a resilient tree, both to kind of inundation of water as well as drought, and has a, a very broad geographic range, 
probably will be more resilient. Same thing with, you know, probably sugar maples, less, less resilient, red maples, more resilient. And then another thing that I think the broader scientific community is looking at is what's called provenance. So provenance is where the seed for the tree, or if it's a cultivar, where the original selection came from. And a really good example are, are red maples. So let's say there's a red maple cultivar. Let's just say red sunset. And let's just say red sunset, when it was selected, came from a population of trees from Maine. So genetically embedded within that cultivar is going to mostly likely be cold tolerance, but not heat tolerance. So a cultivar of a provenance selected up north is probably not going to do well down south. And, and the same is true. Southern tree is probably not going to do well up north. So, you know, people selecting plants today, whether it's cultivars or a lot of, a lot of people who are in the native plant field, not every nursery, but a lot of nurseries, you can go to them now and, and select plants of your local provenance. So, you know, if we're growing, uh, say, swamp white oaks, uh, Quercus bicolor, it would be great if we either can get seed from the local provenance, or probably actually what we would want is not seed from necessarily around here, but seed maybe from say Raleigh, because Raleigh is going to have embedded in it, uh, that population will be more heat tolerant. So, you know, as we think about global climate change, we'll probably want to have plants that come from populations that are more heat tolerant, you know, or maybe can withstand inundation of water or whatever the case might be. Another really good example is Betula nigra. There's two cultivars that are popular today. One is Heritage, and one is Duraheed. Heritage came from a population in the north, and Duraheed came from a population, I think, maybe in Georgia or somewhere in the south. Yeah. And so we used to historically plant heritage in this area, but probably Duraheed is a better selection for this area because as in theory, as the the summers get hotter and maybe the the winters are not as cold, perhaps like Duraheat will be a better cultivar for this area. Now, there are some species of trees that seem to be just a, as kind of a, a species, you know, just more resilient in general. And a really good example is the London plane tree, Platinus acerifolia. And there's many cultivars, exclamations, a nice upright one. Well, that, that can take all sorts of conditions from, you know, hot to cold to dry to wet. So, you know, we'll try to find those type of species as well that are kind of broad spectrum that can take all sorts of conditions. You know, when you were talking about door heat, I actually happened to interview the gentleman from Moon's Nursery when they were going to be releasing it for the American Horticulture Society at the time. Right. I was an intern there. And I asked him, I said, you know, how'd you find this tree within your, he said, well, we had this drought and we lost all of these trees. We had to pull all these birches out because there was a drought and there was nothing left to them. They all died in the field. We get to the back of the field and there's this one, like nothing's happened. It's got these small leaves on it. It's a thick leaf and it's a little bit shiny. 
And he said, we couldn't believe it. They were all from the same cuttings, but this one here had morphed and uh, adjusted itself to the heat. And he said, this is how we found it. And he said, it was like, it never batted an eyelash. It could be in a wet condition. It could be in a dry condition. It's definitely heat tolerant too. So there's, there's a good case of what you were talking about, having something like that in a city setting, especially when you have reflective heat coming from the buildings and the glass and the sidewalks. You know, those are the kind of things that I would think about. And your tree tenders program has expanded their list so greatly, which is wonderful since I was working with tree tenders. I couldn't believe the, the list of plants that you are working with and where you're getting them from too. So that's really commendable. Yeah, two good resources at PHS is if you go to our website and look at our list of recommended trees through tree tenders for street trees. And then the other really good resource is our gold medal plant list. So that's a program that's been going for 40 years. All the plants have been vetted by a committee of nurserymen and designers and so forth. And so that list today is over 150 plants. It's a searchable database. You can get all that information at phsonline.org. Yeah, that's that's really great. Andrew, can you talk a little bit about Subaru? Because that really is a special corporate headquarters and everything that they've been brought together as far as the sustainable, low-maintenance landscape. It's very impressive. Yeah, it's, uh, so it's, it, it's in Camden. It's a relatively new corporate campus. You know, it aligns with, I believe, a lot of the, kind of the ethos of Subaru as a company to be more sustainable and more just conscious of the environment and, and, and so forth. And so they could have easily taken the, the route that most corporate campuses have and just have a sea of grass and some shrubs around the, you know, some yew bushes clipped into, you know, whatever, uh, domes or, you know, rectilinear, <laughs> rectilinear shapes. But they, but they didn't, you know, and I, I, and I believe this came from, from their CEO down. And so they worked with uh, our designers at PHS, Sam Keach, who I believe was yeah. a, a student of Eva's at, mm-hmm. um, at Temple. He did uh, most of the design work there. And we did a lot of contract growing with North Creek Nursery, which is a big wholesaler in, in Chester County of pollinator plants, native plants. And so what we did is, or what he designed is kind of large swaths of a lot of grasses, a lot of native rudbeckias and iron weeds and mountain mints, pycnanthemums. They, everything still needed to be fairly resilient because there's hardly any irrigation. We didn't want to irrigate it in, in any case. And, you know, because it was a construction site, and even though there was some efforts to remediate the soil after construction, it, the soil was still kind of poor. And then there's also kind of some swampy areas there. So we have hibiscus a native hibiscus and some other swampy uh, native plants in, in those areas. And it's also kind of a work in progress. So we planted, I think, 150,000 plugs. Uh, actually, Sam is working on a kind of a national safety testing part of, of Subaru, and they're doing some new landscaping there. So Subaru is a company is committed to this landscape that, the employees, and there's hundreds of employees that work there, 
you know, love what's going on there. We've done multiple plant sales for the employees. There's uh, actually this planting that's going on now that the planting itself is being done by employees. And, you know, Subaru has also been a long, long time supporter of PHS, especially as a sponsor through Philadelphia Flower Show, but also in a number of other different ways as well. Yeah, and I think that's really commendable for a company to work closely. And I think that's really the answer to a lot of our problems if these companies are affiliated with an organization such as yours, where they're actually working in tandem and staying up to date on the latest plant palettes and, you know, where are we going with, with climate change and, and flooding and so on and so forth. So that's really a huge opportunity, not only for you, but for the company, because they, they do walk their talk. Yeah. And I, I have a relatively new colleague. He's actually a math teacher at Lower Marion High School. His name's Dean Rosencrantz. And he's kind of taken up kind of this just personal interest project where he wants to kind of change the paradigm as to how corporate landscapes, you know, plant and maintain their landscapes. Because you figure they are mostly all grass. You can imagine how much like synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, insecticides go into the lawn. All the fossil fuels required to mow the lawn. You know, lawns, a lot of people think lawns are perfect for stormwater retention, but they're actually not because the water sheets across the lawn. So he he's kind of in, in the research mode now. And he's been talking to you name the person, you know, you know, he's talked to Doug Tallamy and you know, all these experts. So he's kind of pulling information together, creating a PowerPoint, and then is gonna kind of He does most of his work in the summer when he's not teaching, and he's going to kind of take his show on the road and really try to kind of change this paradigm. He's even looking into kind of per square foot costs to to take, you know, kind of the Subaru approach. And obviously, that's probably more expensive up front. But what he's going to show is that over five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, that the savings probably should be significant because the only thing you really have to do to this kind of meadow or prairie-esque type planting is maybe cut it down once a year. Although there's, you know, a whole movement happening to not, not even cut down perennial gardens, just let it kind of decompose by leaving it up for the winter provides overwintering habitat for the larva of many beneficial insects, native insects, pollinators, so, you know, that that whole movement is being spearheaded by like the work from Rebecca McMacken at Brooklyn Bridge Park. So, you know, it's interesting where it, we're in this period of ecological gardening where there's a lot of different things happening, moving things forward in a, in a positive way from an ecological perspective. I just reviewed a book for one of the major horticulture magazines, and it's called Beyond the Garden. And it's talking exactly about what you're talking about is, you know, working with the land and how you can sculpt it, but also how you're going to be planning it. And the diversity is important. And that is really critical. And one of the things I think about PHS is you're actually like the, when I say middleman, I mean that you were like an epicenter for information dispersal. And that is critical for any 
city to be successful and its residents to be successful yeah. because not only do you work with organizations, but you also work with people on the street. <laughs> you yeah. work with you work with the individual as well as the corporation. And there's not a lot of organizations that can say that. And you have been working at it for a very, very long time. And how long to, since 1827? Is that yes. correct? 1827. <laughs> um, the Horticultural Society has been thriving and, and making these connections. But also, when we look at your tree program, uh, tree tenders, it's a model for other cities, too. Yes. Because of the way you work, you work not only with corporations, but you work with individual people in their neighborhoods. And getting them out and planting. And I, I was just at a tree tenders event this past Sunday, and I was really impressed with how many people turned out from, I don't know how many different communities. We even had for the first time a mayor who was yeah. part of the tree tenders program in Hatboro, Pennsylvania. And he is really making moves to create planting within his community. So you're really you're really galvanizing people into wanting to do these actions. And I think that that's really important. And I'm sure that there's a formula that you have at PHS. And like, what are some of the things that you talk about when you're sitting around those round tables and get all these things happening? Well, I think, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. We, you know, I heard somebody the other day at an event refer to PHS as the cornerstone of horticulture in the region. And, and I feel like that's, you know, exactly how we see ourselves and what we want to be. And we really want to be a place that uh, helps people, regardless of where they are in their gardening journey. So whether you're, have never gardened before in your life, or you know, maybe you, you've gone to a plant swap and you've got your first cutting of a pothos and that's kind of your beginning of your gardening journey or you're a professional or you have a massive garden, you know, somewhere in the city or, or you know, in the, in the suburbs, you know, we want to be there for those people as well. So you know, the best way for us to do that is to create programs like Tree Tenders, which to become a tree tender, it's a it's a training program. I think it's eight, eight hours, uh, multiple classes. And what it does is it teaches the individual, one, to be an advocate for trees. That's like, first and foremost, to be an advocate for tree plantings, to be ambassador for tree plantings, but then learn how to plant a tree, uh, to maintain a tree, prune a tree, stake a tree, set water a tree, select a tree so that you can go back to your township. Like we, I live in Swarthmore and we have a number of tree tenders. And what they do is they lead, you know, a spring tree planting program. And then we have one coming up on November 19th in Swarthmore where they'll probably plant, you know, 20 trees or so. I mean, we also have a street tree program, but they kind of work together. And then they'll work with other volunteers to maintain the trees throughout the season, hopefully get other people to become tree tenders. So the idea with any of these programs, whether it's tree tenders or community gardens, uh, the land care, the idea is that they all can be replicated really anywhere, almost globally, and they all can be scaled up. So the vacant lot program, there's vacant lots, I'm sure, all over the, the planet. 
So that program, the idea is take these these lots that are strewn with trash or maybe have a house that's been condemned and you pull off the rubble, you put in topsoil, you plant grass, you put a purposeful fence, but not a fence that keeps people out. There's actually breaks in the fence so people can go and use the green space. And then if it's big enough to plant a few street trees. So we started with started this program of probably 30 years ago. It was called the Neighborhood Transformation Initiative. And it's now grown into this program that has 13,000 vacant lots that get maintained. And what the vacant lots become are essentially usable green spaces or, or parks in parts of the city where there's all sorts of equity issues, including green equity issues. So we use a lot of those kind of green interventions in parts of the city and the suburbs where there's a real need. So we have target areas of the city where the tree canopy should be 25%. I mean, places like Atlanta, it's almost 50%. But we work in areas of the city where the tree canopy is 1% to 2%. So, you know, we're, we're applying these different programs throughout the city and suburbs, but it's also a fairly targeted approach because we want to improve parts of the city that really don't have the same green infrastructure as other parts of the city. So we're, we've been doing a lot of work in Nice Town and Tioga, Hunting Park, the South, Southwest, West Philly, uh, Mantua. Uh, but we also want to do work in the suburbs as well. We have some initiatives in Chester, and we're looking at other parts of uh, not just Pennsylvania, but New Jersey, Delaware as, as well. And, you know, we have, have a sister organization, the Delaware Center for Horticulture, who's doing comparable work in, uh, in the Wilmington area. And local communities really benefit from having these tree tender groups, no matter where you are, yes. outside the city or inside the city. Yeah, another thing that really defines PHS is, you know, we do a lot of work ourselves, but we're especially productive because we have so many partnerships. You know, it could be a tree tender group in Hatboro or in Swarthmore or wherever. Uh, but we also work with a lot of community groups throughout the city. We work with a lot of uh, governmental officials. We work with many of the other botanic gardens and arboreta in the area through the, the Greater Philadelphia Gardens Consortium. So we're always looking to establish new and fruitful partnerships. We talked about Subaru's corporate headquarters and their reliance on pollinators and native species and stormwater capture, swales, and things like that. Redesigning American parking lots is actually a weird passion of mine. You know, whenever I go to a mall, I kind of sadly look at the little parking lot trees you know, and just uh, that it's open space that is so poorly designed. And then you mentioned a new colleague, man, really fascinating with what uh, Mr. Rosencrantz is up to, because again, when I'm out driving in far suburban communities outside of Philadelphia, it's very easy to see, like you said, the carbon footprint of maintaining these landscapes. Since I know you have a field of expertise with establishing meadow gardens and use of native perennials, can you talk a little about that? And, and before I turn it over to you, 
you know, you mentioned how the balloon effect of the initial investment for a corporate headquarters, you know, they're going to switch over and they're going to, you know, go with high grass and not mow and that there's an expense up front. But the analogy is, I can't resist, it's the same as buying an electric vehicle, is you're going to pay a little bit more up front, but then you're going to really see those maintenance costs uh, drop, you know, within five years. So yeah, yeah. Interesting uh, jump there. Yeah, so I'll, I'll address kind of several things with your question. So one of the things we're working on right now is we've established or created these principles, there's four main ones for what we call gardening for the greater good. So one of them is just kind of a sharing mindset and encouraging that, whether it's sharing plants or sharing knowledge or sharing excitement. Another one is just kind of the love of gardening and beauty. Another one really kind of touches on, I think, what you just talked about, which is creating these landscapes that are both resilient, have minimal uh, inputs of dollars and fossil fuels and so forth, but are also have significant ecological functions. And I agree, there's there's so many of these kind of wasted spaces, whether it's a, a corporate campus or like you said, in these parking lots that are just so void of almost anything that's good. Like if you want to see the best or the worst uh, examples of mulch volcanoes, and you should go to the parking lots, stormwater runoff, you know, just total compaction, trees that are totally abused. So when it comes to something like that, you know, one of the things we want to do through these kind of newly developed gardening for the greater good principles is we want to you know, we want to definitely influence the home gardener, but we really want to start to influence the industry. So whether that's the landscaper or the landscape architect or the garden designer or the arborist or whoever, and we have some really good partners now. We've we've started to do uh, more and more work with the PLNA, Pennsylvania Landscape and Nurserymen's Association, the PPA, Perennial Plant Association and other kind of industry groups like that. And it's it would be through a partnership like that. And they, you know, they already have uh, certificates that you can get in sustainable landscaping. So it's not as though what we're trying to do is, is a new idea or that others aren't doing it already. But I think if we can work together and combine resources, a lot of it may be working with local municipalities to get them to change their ordinances. So I know in, in Swarthmore, as, as an example, if you develop a piece of property and you remove a certain amount of trees, it's based on the caliper of tree, you have to replace it with, you know, let's say it's a 30-inch tree, you have to replace it by a not just a tree, but multiple trees, and they have to be native trees. So, you know, a lot of these municipalities are changing their requirements. I mean, you know, state of California has approved the elimination of two cycle engines by, I forgot what the year is, and just for your listeners, two cycle engines would be lawnmowers, blowers, weed whips, 
chainsaws and, and a number of other gas operated pieces of equipment. And in the, the industry is changing. Like one of our sponsors for the Philadelphia Flower Show is Steel, S-T-I-H-L. Um, and they have a whole line of not just simple pieces of machinery, but they have a whole line of chainsaws that are battery operated, you know, batter. And there, there's many other companies that ha have these as well. So, and the argument's always been, well, they're, they're not powerful enough. But I think if you can't have gas powered equipment in California, the, the industry that makes these tools will have to respond. Otherwise, what 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 are people going to use to to mow their lawns? Let me let me jump in here for a minute. I remember sitting on the board for the vocational school way back in the early 90s. 96, 1996 was supposed to be the year the two cycle engine was eliminated. Wow. <laughs> and it was supposed to be and they were on their way. And then all of a sudden nah, it stopped. Wow. Um, so so do you does PHS look at themselves as the the connector of dots. In other words, are you connecting all these entities together so that they can talk? Because that's what it sounds like when you're talking about, you know, working with PLNA and working with this other organization, working with Subaru. It seems like you're actually the dot connector. Yes. Yeah. I would say very much so. So, you know, we want to connect the dots in the sense of, you know, if we have all these different kind of green interventions or, or, or ways to improving people's lives through horticulture. You know, we want to be the place where people can come to and learn about all these different initiatives, but we can also connect the dots through our, par our partnerships. Right. It's one thing to have the principles, but we need, we need vehicles to you know, create campaigns or get this information out to garden centers and nurseries and homeowners and professional groups and homeowners associations and retirement communities. So what, one of the things we're working on now are a number of different strategies to, to do this. A lot of it we can do through uh, communications just like this. This is a perfect example where this podcast is actually a communication strategy or vehicle for starting to talk about these different principles. So again, to, to, just to, to reiterate, the four principles are to celebrate gardening. So that one is a, a garden is an expression of your own personality, your growing conditions and your interests. Your creativity will inspire others. There's no right way a garden should look. So we really want to encourage that. Choose plants with intention. So plants are the ingredients of a healthy garden that supports environmental best practices and local businesses. So under this principle, this would be things like buy local, support mm -hmm. your independent nurseries and growers, ask your garden center to grow organically raised plants, ones that have not been treated with uh, neonicotinoids, uh, choose plants to support wildlife, uh, select plants that are not dependent on chemicals to look their best, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, don't, don't pick invasive plants. Uh, number three is see your garden as part of the ecosystem. So your garden and what you do in it are part of a larger natural system. 
uh, garden and recognition of the environment and all around you. So this would be things like, you know, one of the things we've thought about or talked about is if everybody just reduced their lawn by 10%, you know, that would make a massive change to the environment or use organic practices, compost, uh, make your garden an ecological habitat or do things to increase habitat, mitigate stormwater by using rain barrels or or rain gardens. Uh, and then like we've been talking about, reduce your dependence on gas, po- gas powered machines. And then the last one, which we've talked a little bit about is embrace a sharing mindset. So this could just be sharing your expertise, you know, talking to your neighbor about gardening, you know, imparting your knowledge on them, maybe doing a community garden or sharing a garden. Like my neighbors and I actually, the back of their property is actually an extension of my garden. Like, you know, it it actually looks like my garden. You just walk from my garden into their garden. It's actually their yard. And we have a, a, a communal garden, propagate plants, go to plant swaps, share plants. One of the things we've been talking about is, you know, how you go through your your neighborhood and there's those little library boxes. Yes. yes. You yeah. know, and you can just take take books. We've thought maybe we do the same thing for leftover seeds. So you have you know those throughout at your towns. It's free, whatever, you know, if you have extra lettuce seed, you put it in there. You want some lettuce seed, you go in there and take it. So I think that would be a great way to really uh, promote the sharing mindset. Fantastic principles, Andrew. And uh, I think our time is actually already wrapping up. (laughs) I've never been more intimidated asking this question on the podcast as I will now pose it to you. What is your favorite tree? Wow. Uh, I think I've been asked this before, which is a really hard one to answer. But I think at the end of the day, I think probably a, a white oak, you know, and have to be a, an oak, you know, the, might, the mighty oak, you know, probably because it's, I've seen so many just even around here, you know, they're, they're truly a native tree in this area. They can get there's one in Swarthmore that's incredible. I think it's estimated to be 400 years old in a residential property. Uh, Doug Tallamy has told us that the white oak in particular hosts over 500 native species, whether they're, they're birds or insects or butterflies or whatever, whatever the case might be. They are probably, even though the scientists say that, you know, in 75 years, White oak may not be in this area. There are southern populations of the white oaks, so I think that that's something we can collect and, and grow and have them in this area. Maybe they'll be more uh, resilient. Great fall color, great architecture, actually reasonable urban tolerance, reasonable growth rate for for an oak. Yeah, so I guess uh, and, and I guess a close second would be uh, the black gum, Nissa sylvatica. Well, that's interesting. You picked the two top plants, trees that our guests have uh, talked about. So the white ash being number one and the uh, black gum being white oak. White oak. I'm sorry. White, white yeah. oak. <laughs> I was, I was white, a- white ash would be good too if it wasn't for uh, emerald ash borer. 
<laughs> I just did a little thing on Instagram on White Ash yesterday. So yeah, but white oak and black gum are the two top trees on our list. Okay, I have uh, uh, wildfire, which is a selection of- Wildfire, yeah, that's a really good one. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to see both of you. Yeah. Andrew, it's, you guys are doing terrific things at the Horticulture Society. Good luck in 2023 with the flower show. And for our worldwide audience, put it on your uh, calendar to uh, come visit Philadelphia, see the horticulture, and time it to the flower show in uh, 2023. What are the dates? What are the dates, Andrew? Yeah, the dates are March 4th through the 12th. And right now is the best time to buy your flower show tickets. If you can go on phsonline.org, they're cheaper today and the prices will slowly incrementally increase towards the show. So if you want the cheapest tickets, buy them now. Wow. That's great. Ticket futures. <laughs> that's <laughs> the great. Got the inside scoop. <laughs> yeah, you got it. And you can buy them today. Just go to the website. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you didn't talk to you. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.